This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by frying pans. Lots of frying pans. I don't think we've ever had frying pans as a sponsor yeah. of our Working Lunch. Yeah, it's kind of a disaster. I, uh, I'm i a big fan of restaurants, partly because I am not talented in the kitchen. So I see uh, a lot of Chick-fil-A wrappers. What's, what's the deal here? Yeah, so we did this Chick-fil-A home kit thing um, that they rolled out this last week. Pretty aggressive. Lots of lots of stuff in there. Chicken parmesan and Dijon chicken. Are you sure you're capable of pulling all that together in the kitchen? I'm absolutely not capable of pulling all that together in the kitchen. That is why I go to Chick-fil-A. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried that, that uh, it's interesting and it's acknowledgement of where the marketplace is going. But man, Chick-fil-A is so good and such a consistent experience inside the restaurant that I, I, I know that I could never replicate that in my own my own kitchen. But, Definitely uh, not. We're going to give it a whirl, and so um, Chick-fil-A is on the table today. Let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the NAACP notches a win in an important lawsuit in the state of Alabama on minimum wage. We're going to talk about some recent election results and the impact President Trump is having on the process. And we have a special guest stopping by, Justin Winslow, the president and CEO of the Michigan Restaurant Association, will give us an update on the pending paid leave and minimum wage ballot initiatives. We'll talk about those stories and then wrap it up with the legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, alongside my aligned partners, Franklin Coley. And back in the D.C. bubble, it appears our wayward prodigal son, Joe Rinzel, no has returned. Really? And there may be an appearance by him on this podcast. Stay tuned. Wow. Big news. So, Franklin, uh, big week this week uh, in a court case in the city of Birmingham that we've been kind of following for a couple of years. But there was a major development this week that has potential ramifications throughout the industry. You want to elaborate? Yeah, um, and just to rewind the tape for a second. So the city of Birmingham passed a minimum wage um, increase that was above the state level. Um, the state came back and preempted uh, Birmingham. After the fact. After the fact, nullifying the law. And so the NAACP and other groups sued the state, arguing that you know it is a minority-majority city that it is largely African-American, that the state legislature is largely white, and everyone that voted in favor of the preemption was white, and therefore this was a violation of equal protection. Um, so this is, this is truly kind of a, a race-based lawsuit um, to overturn the state preemption law, Obviously, the backdrop, we're talking about Alabama, there's a lot of history here. And so this is just not a, a good good issue and a good dynamic. Um, but from a process perspective, we thought the case had been... Re- it had, had been resolved. had been resolved. And the Court of Appeals this week basically... Breathed new life into the brought case. Brought it back in. So, yeah. um, so, it, so it will now continue through kind of the legal process, which is going to play out over some probably definitely months, probably years. And, you know, this is this is a big win for, I would say, the NAACP, but really more for kind of the fight for 15 that want to drive this inequality narrative um, and paint these issues like minimum wage and paid leave and whatever else 
through kind of a race or an inequality brush. So do you see this having the potential to change the narrative either in that particular location or in that part of the country, the narrative around minimum wage and these efforts at higher minimum wages? So that is certainly Fight for 15's hope. Um, If you'll remember, they did a big uh, rollout and conference in Richmond, Virginia, and, you know, the former capital of the Confederacy, and they made those direct, drew direct lines and, and, and parallels between what they're doing and and kind of the history there. And, and we've seen that with uh, in North Carolina with Reverend Barber. We've seen these this kind of narrative bubbling up from time to time. I don't know I don't know if it's going to catch you know beyond like their little their subset and echo chamber. Uh, but they're certainly trying for that. I will say too that this case, if it does you know continue through the legal process and enjoy some success, there's no reason why there couldn't be similar suits filed in other cities and other in other blue cities and other red states. And that's the real risk here. If 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 the SEIU and the NAACP feel like they're successful, you can easily see copycat cases like this being filed in jurisdictions all throughout the South. And I think for the restaurant industry in particular, that the industry is so closely associated with the with the issue of minimum wage. And if the image of mission, uh, minimum wage becomes closely associated with race, it doesn't take long to put two and two together, and the restaurant industry is now in a conversation they want no part of. Joe, what's the council for operators here? For restaurant operators, you know, there's really nothing to do on this case but pay close attention and pl- pay close attention to where this potential narrative goes. So from a employee relations perspective or a customer relations perspective, they can be prepared to communicate to those audiences properly and from an informed position. So guys, this week we saw uh, some primary election results that are kind of validating what we've been saying for a while about the impact that President Trump is having on not only the electoral process, but the Republican primary process election results in Georgia this week, Franklin. What happened and why is it why does it matter? What's it, why is it important? Yeah, it's a pretty stunning result actually. So, um, we had the lieutenant governor had been the front runner all throughout the contest. Um, the lieutenant money, governor Casey Cagle. Yeah, had money leader, um, kind of had all the wind at his back and you had Brian Kemp who's the secretary of state had run kind of a, a Trump-like um, campaign and kind of snuck into the runoff. Um, and so Cagle was ahead and there's a comfortable margin and you can actually go to the Atlanta Journal Constitution and um, view the graph of the final week tracking poll what happened. But about a week and a half out, there was a secret recording that came out around Cagle that you know knocked him down and kind of put Kemp up, but then that leveled out and Cagle was back up. And then Trump endorsed. And literally, Cagle's support fell off a cliff. And he ended up getting destroyed by Kemp on Election Day. So the Trump endorsement alone wasn't the only factor that bumped Kemp above Cagle, but it was a huge factor. And probably the biggest factor. Definitely. And so we've seen this dynamic play out in the California gubernatorial primary. We're watching it play out right now in the Florida gubernatorial primary. And so, you know, we've, we've kind of said it before, but I really think 
it's official now, and I, I think it's official in the hearts of Republican elected officials and candidates that this is a party of Trump, that if you cross Trump, you're in trouble, that you need Trump on your side, that you need, that the Republican base is uh, picking up and Trump's message and stylistic approach is resonating with them. So Joe Renzel, up in the bubble of Washington, D.C., you know, based on what Franklin was just saying about um, members of Congress, elected officials being petrified to go against Trump, but we are seeing some pushback on the trade issue. You know, what, what, how do you see that dynamic playing out on some of these, you know, important you know, homegrown commodity issues in some of these Trump states. Well, how's that dynamic playing out in Washington right now? Well, I, I think a lot of what Franklin said resonates, you know, here in D.C. too. I mean, I, you have a, a handful of voices that, you know, have been, if you want to call it anti-Trump, within, from within the Republican Party, folks like John McCain, um, you know, Corker. You know, these all folks have a lot. One thing in common, they're all retiring. They're not running again. Um, and so they have some independence to and freedom to, to smack Trump down when they, when he's not agreeing with them. Um, that group is likely to go away this cycle, and there 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 aren't going to be a lot of voices. You, you can't you really can't run in a Republican primary, you know, in a lot of places across the country without that endorsement or without at least having a stylistic approach and a, an America First message. Um, and I, I think those things resonate. So the party's really changing. I'm not sure how that plays out, um, you know, in the next cycle with newly elected. So I think that those voices would shrink. Um, from a trade perspective, I think you do have a lot of folks, particularly in agricultural-based states, that are worried about what's going on with China. That, that, and I know we've talked about this before and how that's going to play out and whether or not that voting block, that base, um, you know, blue-collar farmer or Rust Belt worker uh, is going to stick with Trump on the trade things as their uh, income potentially goes down. Cost of living might be going up. You know, we'll see how time will tell uh, whether or not that comes into play in 2018 or with a longer sights towards 2020. So, so Franklin, based on that, go, let's go back to Georgia. Um, you know, we saw you've been you've been making the point for the last couple of weeks that these primaries have been about they've been what you call base campaigns on both sides, the Democratic primary and the Republican <clears throat> primary. Can you elaborate? What, what does that mean, base campaign? So Georgia is going to be the one of the better examples in the country of this um, in the general election, where you're going to have a Republican and a Democrat, one that ran far to the right, one that ran far to the left, with a message geared towards kind of the extreme uh, – base of the Republican Democrat Party facing off in a general election. So they'll be meaning they'll be working hard to motivate their core voters instead of going after independents in the middle. Yeah. Instead of trying to persuade crossover voters, they're going to primarily and every campaign is kind of a mix of both, but they're primarily going to be focused on firing up base partisans and amping up turnout in their base rather than winning over crossover votes from the other candidate. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in Georgia. We could see that set up in some other states as well. But I will say that moving beyond Election Day and getting into governance, when one of those candidates that is a extreme partisan on the right or the left that has ran their campaign winning 51% of the vote gets into office, it creates a very troubling dynamic to get compromise and to get good legislative outcomes. And, of course, that's the dynamic we've seen playing out recent in recent years here in, in D.C. and other places. 
So on the phone, we have Justin Winslow, the president and CEO of the Michigan Restaurant Association and a longtime friend of our firm and personal friend. And Justin, uh, really appreciate you. He may not want to claim us in the air in public. Well, public. he can disavow it during his okay. time, Fair you enough. know, like most people do. All but, right. uh, you know, I just want to at least give him the opportunity. But, Justin, do appreciate you uh, joining us. Um, and so we just really want to get up to speed on, you know, in Michigan, what's going on? you got the most active ballot. Thanks for the opportunity. It's a ballot crazy year in Michigan this year. You're right. We do seem to be a focus for a lot of attention and a lot of different interests. I think we're going to see recreational marijuana on the ballot, uh, possibly redistricting reform that's in the Supreme Court right now. No absentee voting uh, seems to be on its way to the ballot as well. But the two things we're most focused on are a change to the minimum wage in Michigan, uh, taking it from 925 to 12 and eliminating the tip credit, and then a mandatory paid leave or paid sick leave uh, proposal that is uh, up to 72 hours for any employee over 10 with, with more than 10 employees and uh, up to 40 of paid hours for anyone under 10. No one, no one excluded. And what, what are you hearing from your members in terms of potential impact to their operation? And really specifically, I think the one thing that makes Michigan stand out this cycle, the elimination of the TIP credit being included in one of these ballot initiatives. Can you talk about that? And, you know, are your members worried? I suppose they are. You know, what the, what the potential impacts to them may be. Yeah, the one fair wage proposal is, uh, I think, particularly lethal, which is when you talk about complete elimination of the tip credit in Michigan, that's a $5.73 credit. So that's devastating for our full-service side of the equation, and about two-thirds of our our members are single-unit operators, almost all of which of those are are full-service type restaurants, so you're, you're seeing uh, some major anxiety in this uh, in this state. That's uh, a 241% increase out of almost thin air. Uh, I've heard some interesting anecdotal. One of our larger franchisee members talked about a $25 million exposure uh, from wow. this, uh, closing a little more than 10% of his all stores and, and laying off over 500 people. That's that's after crunching the numbers of the proposal specifically. That's, uh, that's a big deal. And so where do things stand today? Is it my understanding that things are headed to the court on the One Fair Wage Ballot Initiative? Yeah, there's a ballot committee called uh, Michigan Opportunity with strong ties to the hospitality industry in Michigan that has filed a challenge with the Court of Appeals uh, that should be ruled upon uh, in mid-August, I think. Uh, any of that second, third, or fourth week in August is when one could expect a ruling from the Court of Appeals. And it is a similar process going on with the paid leave initiative as well, right? Isn't there litigation from the business I, community pushing back on that? I think it's a challenge in the Secretary of State's office. Is that is that right, Justin? That's right. They, uh, they, they are not filing in court, but there has been a challenge to the signatures, which is still pending before the uh, the Board of Canvassers, which is, is set to meet actually uh, about 24 hours from when we're recording this. So you know, you'll, you'll know one way or the other for them uh, by uh, Friday, July 27th. So, so talk, talk to me a little bit about the, the labor community and the labor unions. Obviously, Michigan, uh, one of the premier labor union legacy states in the country. You know, on their priority list, are they going full bore on this thing? Is it one of many things? You know, how are they, how are they playing this? Aggressively. That, I, think that's fair to, I think that's fair to say. Uh, the two groups have raised, if you, if you include one fair wage and time to care, uh, they have raised a little over $3.5 million uh, for their respective proposals. 
I think we had thought earlier this year that uh, one or the other was going to be chosen and, and, and pushed for the uh, for the ballot, but both ended up raising some significant dollars. Uh, you're seeing a lot of money coming in from D.C., a lot of money out of New York, almost all union-led. In Michigan, the UAW is not picking and choosing. It seems to be supporting every one of these uh, initiatives. So, uh, yeah, I, I think big labor is out big and uh, definitely in Michigan. And so, Justin, talk about – we already talked about the – you know, court challenge in the Court of Appeals. Um, curious to hear kind of what the, the merits of those arguments are and, and how you mentioned the dates, but how that may play out in terms of what are the arguments to remove it from the ballot. Um, kind of second question or follow-up is uh, if, that, if it stays on the ballot, right? So w- w- what's the process moving forward? Whether it gets removed as part of this uh, court challenge or if it stays on, are there other opportunities to challenge it or have it removed on other grounds? You know, what, what does all that look like? Sure. I, I think it's actually an interesting argument uh, that the Court of Appeals will have to deal with. Uh, the submitted language, uh, this is an attempt to amend the, uh, to what, what the proponents would say is the existing minimum wage law. One would assume that you could come in and try to just amend the existing law to fix it where you needed the existing minimum wage law to increase to 12, to the tip credit and accomplish what you're trying to do. But instead of that, uh, this group tried to create a new law without repealing the old law uh, and, and replicating about 99% of the language. It's, it's, it's convoluted, it's confusing, it's unnecessary. Uh, but that is the means by which they're trying to, uh, to craft their, their initiated law. And it is a challenge that they are not actually... It, it's an Article 4, Section 25 uh, uh, Michigan Constitution challenge in that when one when one amends a law that you need to actually recreate the entirety of law, uh, not just the title, for anyone reading it to understand that they are, uh, what, what changes are coming. So gotcha. they violated that by not doing so, by, by seeking to amend the existing law, but not repopulating any of that language. And so it'll be an interesting, sounds a little technical, but it's, a, it's an interesting challenge that they'll be dealing with. So, Justin, politically, I mean, you know, Michigan is, you know, the very definition of a swing state, right? At the, at the state level, um, you've got a Republican governor who's uh, termed out an open seat governor race. You've got a legislature that's that's Republican. Um, you've got a congressional delegation that is uh, leans Republican. But you've got two U.S. senators that are Democrats. So it's a it's a swing state. It's a state in play. How much are the the the, the Debbie Stabenow seat up for reelection and the open governor seat? How much are those races going to affect these ballot questions? I think there's certainly a push to get as many of these on to draw as large a turnout uh, on the left as, as you can, because I think the left certainly sees an opportunity in Michigan that it hasn't had in a while. You're right, right? Michigan has had a Republican governor, state house, and state senate uh, uh, since the 2010 election, uh, and they view this as, as a 2010 in reverse for them. So there's an opportunity to, to take back the governorship, uh, certainly to keep Debbie Stabenow's seat. Uh, maybe pick up a couple of seats in Congress. A couple of those are very much in play, and uh, and then flip at least the House, if not also the Senate. So there, there there's an aggressive effort uh, that seems to be unified across the board, which is not something I can normally say of the Democratic Party in Michigan, but uh, they seem to all be working from the same playbook this year. 
Yeah, what's the old Will Rogers quote? Uh, I'm a member of no organized party. I'm a Democrat, right? Um, you know, but but I, again, I get the point is that, that that all that outside money, all that national money coming into play, whether it's in the governor's race, or the Senate seats, are going to have an impact on these ballot initiatives, and and some of them may get across the line, versa. And vice versa. Yeah, but some of them may get across the line based on a lot of other momentum and get out the vote stuff. So it's going to be an interesting interesting to watch. Um, what do you what do you how do you see it all playing out? Crystal ball time, Justin. Well, I'm really interested. Uh, are you talking about limited specifically to these two ballot initiatives, or or more yeah. broadly politically? Sure? Yeah, yeah. I mean, are, are they, is is the labor community doing all that they should be doing on these ballot initiatives? Do you, do you see them, you know, and it, and performing it, well? And if if it <clears throat> survives this uh, the core challenge, you know what it. What does the process look like moving forward? And then, you know, how's it polling? You think it's going to pass? You think it's going to fail? What's going to, how much money is going to have to be spent to defeat it? What does all that look like? Sure. I, I, I mean, I think the legal argument is, is an interesting challenge. If, if that is not successful in Michigan, uh, the state legislature has 40 days after the Board of Canvassers certifies a proposal for the ballot uh, to choose to amend it, reject it, uh, or put a competing ballot proposal uh, up. And so there's an interesting opportunity for the legislature to engage. Whether or not they do uh, is a question mark. It is, uh, it is an election year, so that makes it a, a challenge to engage on that front, but they'll have that opportunity kind of right up to uh, a deadline just to, that the state puts on getting uh, proposals onto the ballot. So and, and what that's is something that, to, to, to watch for. What is, what is that deadline? September 7th is the, is, the, is the 60 days out standard deadline of when things usually need to be uh, uh, certified appropriately for the ballot. Uh, there is some precedent of that getting pushed back another week to even a week and a half after that timeline if there are pending challenges out there. So uh, by mid-September, one should know for sure what's on the ballot. And whether or not it's winnable, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough call. It's, I think you guys know as well as many of your listeners, the electoral history of minimum wage on the ballot has not been a, a good one for the business side of the equation. So, right. Yeah, so a lot's going to happen in a short time period here. You know, this thing is we're going to have the court challenge, and very quickly the legislature may look at this. And then very quickly after, you know, the ballot is finalized, we will be voting. I mean, you know, if you're talking mid-September, it's not long until absentee ballots mm-hmm. are, are going out and uh, early voting is kind of cranking up. So um, going to be exciting. And, you know, for our listeners, I've always said that Justin's one of the top 50 state restaurant association execs in the entire country. So, oh, yeah, I'm so proud. Thank you. Yeah, you're right out there. No, my friend, you've been you've been doing a, a great job for this industry in a very tough place for a long time. And uh, for our listeners, Justin's been uh, a leader in the industry and in trying to not only focus on state house issues, but getting us organized and, and um, at, at the local level as well as we manage through a lot of local wage and hour and benefit issues that are coming in cities across the country. And Justin's been a, a leader among uh, in the industry in that space. And so we appreciate all you've done in your state and uh, keep up the good work, my friend. All right, thanks for the time, guys. So let's move on to the uh, Paul Revere section of the podcast. This is where we identify a couple interesting news items that we saw this week that we think have implications uh, long-term for the industry that kind of caught our eye. Franklin, uh, there was an article in Fast Company magazine called uh, named how a small worker-owned trust could transform agriculture labor for decades talk to me about that well the 
labor commune has uh, become back in vogue. Um, Let me guess. Oh, yes, California. Indeed, indeed. So I'm sure since the early 60s when you lived in a labor commune, things <laughs> have changed a little bit. Well played, Keep sir. Well played. Um, Damn. But, uh, yeah, so and the way this article is written, the way people talk about it is like they thought of this for the first time ever. It's kind of funny. But, the, but why does it matter? So it matters because, first, it has a high level of participation. There are a lot of workers participating in this. I think it's four or 500, and many more want to join the commune. Um, it is being backed and funded by a number of uh, prominent nonprofit groups, including the Workers Lab, which is uh, a project of the SEIU. Essentially, what they're doing is they're trying to create this alternative labor organizing model. It's kind of based on Coalition of Immokalee Workers and other labor models and you know what they want to do is kind of figure it out and then export it and they say this in the article that they their stated intent is to export this model to other industries so we're keeping an eye on it just from a nerdy labor relations perspective because it's an interesting new model that's being tested yeah and i think the other part is that you know they're 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 acting as growers and distributors and kind of cutting the middleman out of the ag to market process and then those supposed savings are rolling back into high wage. All right. Uh, second thing that caught our eye this week was uh, an article both the New York Times and the Washington Post reported on it. Um, and this one really focused on Nike uh, raising wages for thousands of their workers after an internal audit showed significant levels of pay inequity, inequality. Joe, what's been the, the, the impact of that storyline? In the retail world, yeah, I think it's been interesting. You know, Nike is this company, you know, based out of uh, the Northwest. I think, from a culture, corporate culture perspective, they consider themselves, you know, very progressive and kind of out there on on good, solid issues from an advocacy perspective. And this internal audit really came, you know, really shook the core, I think, of the of the culture there. And, and you know, a lot of uh, you know wrapped up into the Me Too movement, and you know, a lot of the female employees have been, you know not um have been complaining and, and having a lot of challenges you know this result uh it, it, you know a lot of the the chief leadership has exited the company you know they're trying to turn the corner here um the result of this is you've got this announcement that you know seven thousand nike employees will be getting raises they're going to be continuously reviewing their pay bands and internal structures um they're putting a lot of changes in place um but it's another example of kind of a, a the need from a large or massive organization to orchestrate a you know worthwhile response to these challenges that they face internally um we'll give it a while and we'll see you know how successful they are but certainly they're taking the right steps in the beginning so so franklin what are the what are the, what are the potential ramifications here yeah and just to renzo kind of hit on it but this whole drumbeat around equal pay in state capitals at the federal level and city halls you know that's that's really what Nike's responding to, and the seven thousand raises, seven thousand pay raises were meant to level out what their internal audit showed were gaps and inequities that they couldn't attribute to merit, and so essentially the assumption was that these gaps or inequities were based on gender or race or or some other factor, and so you know it, it's this is a really big deal. This is 
a big brand getting in front of this issue. We've seen other brands, Gap, MasterCard, Target, AT&T do the same thing. Um, you know, essentially removing this exposure on this issue from these companies. And I, and I think for, for the companies, you know, restaurant operators and retailers and other, other folks in the entry-level space, you know, the Washington Post story talks about how more and more companies are performing these audits on themselves to, to protect themselves and, and, you know, level the playing field. And doing those, audit, doing those audits could become the new norm. And, the, and potentially, if your companies that aren't doing those audits, you can be more and more kind of on an island, not only from a from a HR perspective, but from a reputational perspective. So it's a uh, for the HR people, it's something it, very interesting to watch and see how this plays out. All right, it's time for the legislative scorecard, where we talk about the big issues around the country this week and. Let me tell you, it's a pretty thin scorecard this week. I think the entire elected world is on vacation or at the beach. So this will be a, a short scorecard this week. Or on the campaign trail. Or on the campaign trail. Joe, there was a little um, up in the bubble this week. There was a little bit of activity on paid leave in the House. Can you elaborate? Yeah, they had a House subcommittee held a hearing on uh, the work flex in the 21st Century Act. So this is somewhat of a preemption uh, paid leave bill. So if you offer a certain amount of leave... Um, you'd be preempted from all the state and local stuff that we've seen happening. It's not going to go anywhere um, from a federal perspective, much like other issues in Congress. You've had some Senate activity where they're looking at the issue, Ivanka Trump, et cetera. Um, but, you know, the, I think the basic point is they're talking about it now for the first time, both parties. Um, but it's got a long road ahead. Okie doke. And, Joe, just up the street in New York City, there was a little bit of activity on the scheduling issue. Right. We've been watching that closely. New York City, they've got uh, their Department of Consumer Affairs releasing proposed rules to enforce the Fair Work Week law that passed last year. Um, they'll be holding a public hearing here in a couple within a couple weeks. Uh, we don't expect any really substantive changes uh, to the rules that have already been published, and it'll go into effect. Franklin, there was... Uh legal issue in Kentucky this week involving Papa John's, but not the one that's been making big headlines with the CEO. What's happening with delivery drivers? This is one of a, just a ton of suits that have been filed all over the country against not only Papa John's, but also Domino's and, and other pizza delivery chains, essentially what they're trying to establish. And we've seen this with Uber, Lyft, um, Grubhub, other delivery drivers as well is they're trying to establish that they're employees, that they're misclassified independent contractors. And we're going to continue to see the trial bar kind of push this all over the country. Um, you know, as we see more and more restaurants, an increasing amount of their revenue coming from delivery, this is this is a challenge and a problem, something we have to keep an eye on. Yeah, so this, this week in Chicago, there was a restaurant industry um, conference, and one of the speakers was – some, some HR folks, and one of the speakers said that over the next five years, um, in, in, in five years, more than half of restaurant sales will be outside the four walls of the restaurant. And, you know, how, how do HR people hire and train for that in a very different way than they've done traditionally? And these delivery driver issues are front and center in that space. You know, we talked about, you know, we're having Chick-fil-A home meal kits today. Um, you know, they, they will be wrestling with that issue as well at that company. So, uh, moving on, Joe, 
staying in the Northeast. I mean, D.C. and New York. Now we're in Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. The Third Circuit Court had a decision this week that I think in potential impacts operators. Yeah, this is a little different. The Third Circuit overturned um, a, a lower court's decision. This is a sexual harassment claim by a county employee, I believe, in, in a county in Pennsylvania. Um, I think the important thing from a precedent perspective is that the appeals court found that even though the employer had a harassment reporting process in place, they even ultimately fired the offender, you know, for infractions that might have been unrelated to this plaintiff's case. You know, the point is the, the employer took action and had a program in place, but now the third circuit is saying, well, they could still be find, found liable by a future jury, so we're going to let this case proceed. You know, we'll continue to watch it. It's still in the litigation process, but it was an important note. So that wraps up our legislative scorecard this week. Um, Franklin, I will be out next week at the National Conference of State Legislatures. Uh, Mr. Rinzel has allowed me to pinch hit for him out on the conference circuit. Is he, is he hitting... Betty Ford for the... He might be going back to Italy. I don't know. Break. I may be. Um, I got to put my feet up, guys. It's been a, it's been a tough run. But uh, yeah, that's it for, for listeners. That is a, a giant conference. Uh, probably a quarter to a third of all state legislators in the country are there. Uh, four days of just end-to-end policy workshops and, and panels and presentations. And so there'll be a lot of stuff there on wage, a lot of stuff there on benefits, a lot of stuff there on automation and how states are are um, trying to tax and regulate the new economy. So I'll report back on that next week. Um, Big plans for the weekend, Franklin, Joe? Just listen to Working Lunch and take notes and be prepared for next week. That was my plan, too. Yeah, you guys are so diligent. I know. We'll see you next week.